Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. A spectacular October morning and uh, wonderful to be here uh, together for the study of God's Word. And we are in Leviticus looking at chapter 4 in uh, our adventure in uh, this central book of the Pentateuch, third book of the Bible, the book of the law. In this case, the uh, specific instructions given to the people of Israel known as Leviticus with specific reference to the Levitical priesthood and the, the performance of sacrifices as we see here in the beginning of our study together. We're going to be looking at chapter 4, continuing this morning, but let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray that you will open your word and open our hearts simultaneously and open our minds to understand. And Father, we seek the deep things in your word, things hidden from before the foundation of the earth that you have revealed to us. Father, we pray this for your glory and for the health of your church. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. This morning, no doubt, uh, you gave some thought to coming here, and for the study of God's Word and for worship, you, you gave some thought to what would happen here, and we've often described the distinction we find in the book of Leviticus in terms of the cultus, all, all that's required in terms of preparation and specificity, even all that's required in terms of the, of the physical objects from the, the tent of meeting and the, the tabernacle to what will eventually be the temple the most holy place, the spectacular cloth that uh, is, is arrayed within the site of the room, the specific uh, grandeur and priestly nature of the vestments, the robes worn by the priests and, and, and by others. We compare that to the fact that we don't have a uniform. There, there are no priestly garbs. There's no priest here. But as we look at the passage of our consideration today, beginning in Leviticus chapter 4, it's, it's just yet another stark reminder of how much attention this required of Israel. For Israel to be faithful to this law, it had to give constant, virtually hour-by-hour hour attention uh, to itself and to the preparation for what would be necessary sacrifices. Today, we come to the sin offerings, and thus, this is what, in so many ways, most Christians think of as the very heart of the sacrificial system. Now, we've seen there are other offerings, guilt offerings, peace offerings, burnt offerings, but, but now we come to the sin offering, and I think most Christians, however, is, even as they think we know what this, this kind of offering is going to be about, we know what this sacrifice is going to be about, would be shocked to find out actually how Chapter 4 begins. Now, for one thing, this is a new passage in Leviticus, and you know that because of the phrase, now the Lord spoke to Moses. So when, when this comes, this is like a separate oracle experience. Moses is receiving this separate from what has come before. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel. Another thing we need to note, so this is not secret priest code. 
which again tells us something about how central this was, not just to the priesthood, but to Israel. This is not secret information that is supposed to be released only to the priests who have this Gnostic, that is, that secret knowledge. No, this is the knowledge of Israel. The Lord spoke to Moses. Moses is to speak to the people. He is to tell them exactly what he has received from the Lord, not just the priests, all of Israel. Speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. This is pretty straightforward. It's big. There's something here that Christians might just rush past without recognizing what's taking place here. And, and, and not just in times past, but maybe particularly in our times. Because in our times, there is a lot of effort to minimize sin. Now, that's probably been a, a human project ever since Genesis 3. So we get that. But there's a sense in which in our time, we have some rather sophisticated mechanisms to try to deny the sinfulness of sin. Uh, for one thing, we've had the modern redefinition of human beings from, uh, from being sinners who are agents to being victims who are acted upon. And so there is a sense in which, and, and there's a lot behind this, you have the entire revolution in terms of Freudianism and, uh, and, and the psychotherapeutic revolution that creates the self and, uh, and, and what, what is wrong basically is from outside the self and it, 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 it represses the self. It, it, Freudianism is a lot more complicated than that, but the point is that the average American thinks of sin as something far less than a falling short of the glory of God and a violation of God's law that brings on God's wrath and that brings on guilt. The big thing, and just for the sake of time this morning, the big thing in this shift of sin is the idea that whatever sin is, it should not bring about a sense of guilt. A sense of guilt. When most people today talk about guilt, they talk about something that is subjective. I feel guilty. And, and you know, if you go to uh, uh, the psychotherapist, you're likely to hear that, uh, that guilt is something you need to overcome. It is something that has been imposed upon you. Now, in terms of the Christian vocabulary, our understanding of guilt is first and foremost that it's an objective reality. It's an objective reality that is not necessarily our sense of it because it exists whether we sense it or not. It's an objective reality because it is indeed the guilt of having transgressed God's law. And with the sin comes guilt. We understand that the parallel word is shame. Shame is the experience, individually or collectively, of, of having sinned. By the way, uh, NASA Public Radio this morning, as I was shaving, and uh, I turn on the top news segment from NASA Public Radio when I begin to shave, 
just as some kind of thrill to see if I can listen to that news and still not cut my throat uh, as I'm shaving. But uh, this morning it was a particular challenge because they were talking about the women's marches all over and especially in response to the Texas abortion bill. And uh, there was a woman coming on and, and the, one of the NPR reports said one of the central purposes of the march is to help women to understand there should be no stigma attached to abortion. And one of the women speaking just said, I had an abortion simply because I didn't want to be pregnant, and there's nothing wrong with that. And you just listen to that, you go, okay, there's the battle cry. That, there's the battle cry of rebellious humanity. Uh, I had an abortion simply because I didn't want to be pregnant. You know, deal with it. There's no stigma here. There's no shame here. But you need to notice something that we just read in the beginning verses of chapter 4 in Leviticus. Because it's the refutation of modern liberal Protestant theology that minimizes sin. It's the refutation of modern evangelical stupid. There's a lot of that that minimizes sin. And it's the refutation of the idea that we can sin without guilt. Look at what we read. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about these things, not to be done and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people. So here's how inextricably linked sin and guilt are. The link is so powerful that if unintentionally, this is how the whole text begins, if one of the priests sins unintentionally, he brings guilt upon the people. So you'll notice it's almost as if that verse was was just given to us to refute this modern argument of the minimization of sin. This is natural for Israel. Israel. Israel was hearing this as if it knew what sin is, and now it's just being told how the Lord will have them deal with sin. But in this case, it's, it's an unintentional sin by a priest that brings guilt upon the entire nation. Turns our theology on its head. And, and it's right there. And it's, it's natural. You'll notice this is, this is just the natural argument of Leviticus. This is why all the sacrifices, why all the offerings, this is why all the, the, uh, the requirements. And it's, it's just mind-blowing to recognize what we're being told here. God takes sin so seriously that if a priest unintentionally sins, it brings guilt upon the entire nation. What then is to be done? Again, specificity. Then he, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. 
And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys, just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offering, but the skin of the bull and all its flesh with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. It's a lot there. One of the things we're going to see is that Israel is given a certain scale of sin offerings. In this case, it begins with the most significant, and that is an, a, a sin of a priest that brings guilt on all the people. What kind of sacrifice would be required? Well, it is a sacrifice of a bull without blemish. Now, in the pecking order, in the economy of the animals, in this agrarian context, a bull is the most expensive animal of all. So you're talking about a very expensive sacrifice, and it has to be provided. And uh, one of the things we note, just as a matter of economy here, is that because of the nature of sin and how often we sin, how often Israel sinned, how often the priests would sin, even unintentionally, then there would be the need for a lot of bulls uh, to be brought so one of the things you have to see in the background of Leviticus is the economy of the sacrificial system. This is, a, this is a massive economy. And in the case of this particular sacrifice, there's nothing left. So the priests are not eating this, otherwise the priests would benefit by his own sin. And that's one of the reasons why, at the very end of what we read, the, uh, the, the animal is taken uh, to the, the place outside the camp where it's burned utterly. Uh, as a sacrifice to the Lord. But you'll notice that he is to bring the bull uh, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. So this is before the Lord. So the sacrifice itself is taking place out, out front, but looking into the tent of meeting. So it's outside. So the nothing's brought in until it is intentionally by instruction brought in. Notice again the substitutionary transference here. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent and before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. Laying on a hand again, this is a priestly way of indicating representation, substitution, sacrifice. Well, we're told what happens here and it's similar to the burnt offering, but it's not exactly the same. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. So as you picture it, you have the tabernacle, and outside the, the tent, you have the, the actual sacrifice of the animal laying on of hands, and, and then the animal is butchered, it's slaughtered. And then what is taken into the tent and towards the most holy place is some of the blood from the animal. And this blood is going to be sprinkled. 
And you'll notice in verse 6, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in the front of the veil of the sanctuary. And Mary and I have had the uh, delight of having our daughter Katie and our grandkids with us just for a few days this week. It was precious, precious time. And uh, uh, I, this is just being inflicted upon you, sorry, uh, sort of. But uh, Benjamin's five, and Henry's three, and Mary Margaret's about six months. It's the two boys that are uh, the center of storm and fury. Uh, we just love watching them play, just playing with them, just watching them, these two little boys, just energy off each other, constant reference to each other. And, uh, in my library, I have a couple of, uh, of book stands uh, with the antique antiquarian Bibles of significance on them. And they look like pulpits to these two little boys, and so they decided that they would take upon themselves to go down to my study and preach. Um, Benjamin is learning so much at five, he can preach. He can really preach. I mean, he can get up and tell you about the entire sequence of the Old Testament events. Uh, he can tell you about the invasion of the Hiskos into Egypt. And just, it's just incredible what this five-year-old already knows. But uh, there are other things that he hears that he doesn't really know. At one point, he was talking about God giving Noah the rainbow sign. And he, he talked about the rainbow. Then he said, and he gave him a sign. You know, he put up a sign. Yeah, just like God putting up a sign. Saying, Look at the rainbow, you idiot. Uh, you know, <laughs> God put up a sign. Uh, but uh, as, uh, as he was preaching, and by the way, that meant that his little brother went to the other pulpit and just kind of mimicked words coming from from Benjamin, but the, the preaching is pretty much centered on sin. Okay, a five-year-old gets there pretty fast uh, about the fact the Lord God told Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they did. God put them out of the garden, and then Noah and the flood. God's judgment on sin is big, because if you're five, that you get. You don't get it in its fullness, but you get that that is the point. It takes an adult to miss the point. It really takes an adult's defense mechanisms. It takes psychotherapy and liberal theology and all the rest to avoid just how, just how grotesque sin is. But for Israel, just think about the fact that every single day, it... it most days, I should say. Most days in the cycle of Israel's life, this is just being constantly done. And the sprinkling of blood, when you think about it being brought into the, to the tent of meeting, and some of it is sprinkled here and some of it is sprinkled there. By the way, uh, the number seven is big because uh, uh, we also got a sermon on Jericho and Joshua. And how many times? Seven times. Why? You ask, was it seven times? Because God told them seven times. Okay, that's the right answer. 
But the number seven just comes up again and again and again, this number of, of perfection pointing to divine glory and the divine command. And the divine command is that this is to be done seven times. It's interesting. This is different. Part of it is sprinkled in front of the veil of the sanctuary. So that veil is what separates the holy place from the most holy place, what in the New Testament we refer to as the holy of holies. So at least that's what we think of it more often as the most holy place. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. So this is the, this is the, the incense piece. And uh, the horns, remember, this is where on the corners there would have been raised by the horns like the horns of an animal. Some of it is to be sprinkled there as well. Now, you have to remember that also what has to follow this is the cleansing, the ritual cleansing of all. But then you have a dead animal. You just took the blood into the tent of the meeting. And so verse 8, and all the fat of the bull of the sin offering you should remove from it. So at this point you think, well, this is going to be all removed because parts of it are going to be burned, you know, on, in the offering, and parts of it are going to be dealt with this way and that way. Part of it the priest will eat. No, this is different because this is a sin offering we are given all the detail about what is to be removed, but uh, you have the, the prize pieces burnt at the altar of the burnt offering, but then the rest of it, and here's the other just blockbuster part of this passage. All the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap and shall burn it up on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Amazing. Outside the tent. Outside the camp. So now we have spatially, as we're thinking about this, we have the camp, and then, and then we have the, 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 the tent in the camp, and you, you approach it within the camp. It's all within the, the little society, the little civilization where Israel, and this is, Israel is not a little people at this point, but we, we understand it's this, it's this, let's call it the metropolis of Israel. But some things have to go outside. Aristotle said that every city, civitas, begins with families who first of all identify with each other and then secondly identify against the world. World's a violent place, Aristotle understood. So if you see a city, two things have happened. So people gather together, and this would have been family structures, they gather together, and out of their commonality, they say, let us live together. But in order to survive, they had to say, not only are we committed you know, to, to each other inside this civitas, but we are against the rest. In other words, defensive uh, because others will try to come and take us or, or what is our own. But Aristotle's point was that as, as you have a city like that, or, or what we would just call the, 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 the camp of Israel, there has to be a definition, a clear definition of what is inside and outside. So that's why during this time of human history, you often have city walls and you have city gates. Because 
Aristotle is right. That's how a city starts. People saying, let us live together. But then in order to live together in peace, they have to be ready to define themselves and to defend themselves against the world, thus the wall, thus the gate. This is a camp. Remember, Israel isn't yet a city. This is a moving metropolis. This is a nomadic people being led by the Lord until they can go into the land of promise where they will inhabit the land. And so there's you look, notice the verbs in the Old Testament. They're, they're passing through this territory. They're going to inhabit. Uh, they're going to possess. That's another really important uh, Old Testament word. They're going to possess this land of promise. But they're just passing through here. But even when they are a camp rather than a city, there has to be an inside and an outside. And then there are things that take place outside. And by the way, that's true for us. There was a controversy just a matter of uh, about two years ago because here's an obvious fact a lot of people don't think about. And evidently it's an obvious fact a lot of people in New York City, in Manhattan, didn't think about. Guess where the garbage goes produced by all those millions of people in Manhattan? Well, here's the answer. It doesn't stay in Manhattan. Manhattan can't do anything with all this garbage. It produces a lot of garbage. It has to go somewhere. Basically, there are only two ways out of Manhattan for that trash. Uh, one is by ship, and the other is by train. And so, a couple years ago came the scandal of the fact that a lot of the garbage in Manhattan was being taken by night on these stinky garbage trains that were going to places like, uh, well, there were some southern states and some other places where landfills were created in order that what New York produces and can't handle be taken elsewhere. Well, there was outrage at the fact that these Manhattanites were exporting their garbage. You know, someone else has to take their garbage. And after all, these are the people who want the Green New Deal and meanwhile, in order to flush their own commodes and do everything else, they got to just put it on a ship and, and put it on a train and ship it somewhere else. But the point is, you can't live in Manhattan if your garbage stays in Manhattan. Here's a little clue. It's bad enough when it's there long enough to be picked up to be put on a train or on a ship. One of the first things I notice about being in a place like Manhattan is not just the tall buildings, it's the tall smells you have a real clear idea that there are human beings living in Manhattan doing all the human being stuff that produces all the human being stuff. One of the other things I learned as a Boy Scout, there are certain things inside the camp, certain things outside the camp. You don't build your latrine inside the camp. That's not good form. That doesn't work very well. That adds up to, if you're you know, a bunch of Boy Scouts, that adds up perhaps to some temporary inconvenience, if it's long-term, it's called typhus. It's, uh, it's deadly. This doesn't work. Israel had to have an inside and outside the camp. And understand, the outside the camp means two things. It means outside the civilization. It's outside the civitas. It's, it's, in, it's in the territory that the city's not claiming as its own. It's not defending this territory. It's not the civilized territory. It's not the, it's not the inhabited territory. But more than that, it's, it's a distinction between where we live and we keep clean and what's outside 
with a different set of rules. Outside the camp becomes very important. Outside the camp will be important to our salvation, where Christ dies outside the camp, outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He is taken out where the garbage is burned, where he dies for our sins. But right now, this is outside the camp for what is left of the bull. And the bull was taken outside the camp to a clean place, to an ash heap, and on the ash heap it shall be burned up. So the Lord doesn't want the, this, this part of the bull. Like the burnt offering, the prize parts are to be burned on the fire, but in this case, what's left pretty graphically described is to be burned outside the camp. In verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it to the front of the tent of meeting and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall bring some of the blood of the bull into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord in front of the veil. And he shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar that is in the tent of meeting before the Lord. And the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all of its fat he shall take from it and burn on the altar. Thus he shall do with the bull. As he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this. And the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. And he shall carry the bull outside the camp and burn it up as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. So much here. Actually, so much here that you understand is at the heart of the gospel. The word atonement shows up here. The priest, by this sacrifice, is making atonement, atonement for sin. This is not just illustrative. The, the, the sacrifice is not just demonstrative. Something objective is taking place and atonement is made. And there again is the, the prefiguring of our salvation. Our salvation is not merely on the fact that Jesus died as a demonstration, as an illustration, but rather that he died objectively to gain our salvation. Ob something objective happened. And atonement is accomplished. This is the people sinning. And you'll notice the unintentionality is made clear. And you'll notice that unintentional doesn't mean unsinful. This, is, this all begins with unintentional sin. An unintentional sin... Uh, which is seen in retrospect. Once it becomes known, then the guilt is known. The guilt was already there because the guilt's objective. The guilt's objective, the atonement's objective. What's subjective is our understanding of our sin. So when the people sin unintentionally and when it's known to them, then the sacrifice has to be made. And you'll notice if I was pretty much the same, the same symmetry it has to be a bull. 
It is sacrificed as instructed. The blood is taken inside the tent as instructed. And then the rest of the bull, uh, after the prize parts are burned, as in the burnt offering, it is taken outside the camp and burned up. In verse 22, when a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord, his God ought not to be done, and realizes his guilt, or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish, and shall lay it on his hand, the head of the goat, and kill it in the place where they kill the burnt offering before the Lord. It is a sin offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. And all its fat he shall burn on the altar like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. So the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin and he shall be forgiven. Back up in verse 15, something happened that we ought to note. It says in verse 15, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord. Now, the elders, repeatedly in the Old Testament, we're told about the elders of Israel, particularly in this, this period, we, we hear about the elders of Israel. Here's what we don't know about them. Almost everything we don't know about them. We don't know much about them at all. We don't know how many of them there were. We, they're probably the heads of the houses. That's, that's, that's probably it. But we really don't know. But clearly, this is a group of men identified as elders who have a spiritual responsibility, probably more than spiritual, it's probably also political and economic and in every other way. But they, they bear, this is the leadership of Israel. These are the men who are the leadership of Israel. This is an eldership. And, and again, you see pointing towards the church. It's, it's pointing to the church, but we don't, we don't know a lot about these elders. But the very fact that they are cited is really important to us. In other words, they, they have the responsibility, the stewardship, the agency, the leadership. It's assigned to them. But one of them may sin. And that's what we're looking at here. You see the elders of Israel, now we're told if a leader sins, it's the same pattern of unintentionality of a sin that becomes known. But you'll notice that in this case, it is not a bull, it is a goat. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that sin is, in every case, an infinite transgression against the holy God. But there's a scale of sacrifice. And so it began with the priest. And remember, the, the sin of the priest brought guilt, not just, not just sinfulness, but guilt objectively upon all the people. Therefore, it had to be a bull. The bull's the very most expensive, most precious of all the animals, making the sacrifice very clear. If the assembly itself, if Israel itself sins, that corporate sin, again, a bull. But here, after we had a reference to the elders in verse 15, now we're told, we're told about a leader. If he sins, it's a goat. That doesn't mean his sin is less significant. It does mean that the sacrifice for it need not be, uh, as it was in the first two cases, a bull. It also tells you about the pecking order. And as we will see a little further in the text, it's a bull and, uh, and, and, and then a goat and, and then a lamb. Now, you say, well, why would a goat be more precious than a lamb? Well, actually, I know too little about uh, either goats or sheep to be able to define that, except the fact that evidently in Israel and likely elsewhere, sheep reproduce faster. 
Okay. So you notice the goat is to be treated pretty much like the bull, so much so that it, it is said to be like the burnt offering, like the fat of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. Verse 27, if any of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish. So this is a less expensive sacrifice than the leader, which was a male goat. Now it's a female goat. For his sin which he has committed, he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of his blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out all the rest of his blood at the base of the altar. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat is removed from the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the priest shall make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. So this is an individual sin. And in this case, it is a female goat. But notice the provision in verse 32. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish. So in other words, the preference is for a goat, but here you have an allowance for a lamb. Then the priest shall take some of the blood from the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and pour out the rest of its blood at the base of the altar and all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed. And he shall be forgiven. So what we have here in, in chapter 4, this is this four part. If, if a priest sins, if the people sin, if the leader sins, if any of the common people sin. So that's another breakdown. We have a breakdown of animals, bull, he goat, she goat, lamb, and then a breakdown of the hierarchy of the consequences of sin. Starts with the priest. Isn't that interesting? Starts with the priest. It doesn't start with the assembly. It starts with the priest because the priest, as the mediator, his sin becomes paramount in consideration. You'll notice that once again, you have the Lord speaking to Moses. You have to look back and wonder, you know, when Moses brings this, because you, you think of the Lord God Almighty giving Moses the law, you think about the tablets of stone. Not that many words. In fact, in the Hebrew, these ten words, of course, they're, it's like, my dad used to say, I'd like to have a word with you. I noticed when I was very young, there's never just one word. Because you know, like, my dad said, I don't have a word with you. And it's like, you know, weather. No. He never had one word with me. It was a word. And uh, it's the same thing when you say these ten words. It's the ten commandments. And there are more words than ten. But... Can you imagine what it was like for Moses even to communicate this? Because as I've been just working my way word by word through Leviticus and then putting it in the context of the Pentateuch, the Pentateuch in the context of unfolding um, 
theology of the Old Testament and that within a canonical theology, the two testaments together, you look back and you go, you know, there is a lot of amazing things to think about. Because you can think about, for example, what it would have been like for a church in Philippi to receive this letter from the Apostle Paul and for the letter to be read aloud. Got that, got that. But just think about Leviticus. Just think about the fact that it's been a fairly hard process to us to just hear the same words over and over again and the complexity of all of this and some of you are uh, because you love God's word taking notes you go back and look you know just imagine that this had to be an inscripturated revelation because who can keep all this straight part of the gift of God's words part of the, the gift of Torah of, of law and uh, even as Israel was told to commit all this to its heart, I mean, there's incredible specificity here. We're just four chapters into Leviticus, folks. And, and already you could not keep this straight. If, if there was an exam on this material, how would you do? Well, what about if someone's life is depending upon this? What about, what about if the life of an entire people is depending on this? We need an inscripturated revelation. We need it as much as Israel needed it. We need the word. We need the scriptures. We need the Bible. Imagine Israel hearing this for the first time because you'll recall that the pattern is the Lord God spoke to Moses. And remember, he, he, he called to Moses from the tent as Leviticus begins. But he says this to Moses, but it's not just, hey, Moses, I'm letting you in on exactly what we're doing here. But it's Moses receiving this in order to teach it to the people. And I just, in my own imagination, have to think about what that would have meant. But then you think about all the generations of Israel, even in just the, the, the process of children coming along and young men becoming older men and elders passing and elders coming. You know, this has just got to be taught all the time. And it's being taught by the fact that it's happening but Israel has to be continuously told, we didn't come up with this. This is what the Lord said to Moses. And right now, Moses is with them. These are the books of Moses. The Lord speaking to Moses. Moses also has a mediatorial role here. As you look at, at chapter 5 going forward, and that's where we will turn next, uh, you'll notice specific kinds of sins. In verse 1, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he's a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. And uh, we shall see that you know, touching unclean things, you know, et cetera. So there's going to be specific sins that are, that are going to follow, specific sacrificial responses. But in chapter 4, we just need to note the, the magnificent weight of this chapter even beginning with the Lord speaking to Moses about the sin of a priest that uh, isn't just a liturgical mistake. Even if done unintentionally, it brings sin and guilt upon the entire people. And the people cannot remove their own guilt. That's the point. And, and that's the point of the gospel. We cannot remove our own guilt. 
Guilt is an irresolvable problem for us because the offense is not something that we can make compensation for. We can't pay for it. This animal cannot pay for it. As we see in Hebrews chapter 9, and we've thought about this so many times, we have to think about it again. It is impossible for the blood of bulls or goats to take away sins. And I remember that song that I have known virtually all my life. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And so this is all pointing to Christ. And, and yet, I hope it, it, looking backwards, helps us to understand that this is all on the mind of Jesus in his earthly ministry. This was all the purpose of God. God did not have this as plan A that failed and Jesus was plan B. From the beginning, this was to point to a sacrifice for sin once and for all, as the Apostle Paul would say, to take away our sins. Because by the time you read Leviticus chapter 4, you recognize this is about unintentional sins in which one priest can sin and the entire people be guilty, then guess what? Here's the reality. Guess where Israel was right after every one of these sacrifices? Right back where it started. This was the terror to me when I was about 12 or 13 years old and just hearing the preaching about sin when I recognized there's no safe place. I can confess all my sins knowing he's faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And yet, I will probably sin as I'm asleep before I awake. I'll awake and think a sinful thought and I'm right back where I was. So, here's where Israel is. Always needing more bulls. And but for Christ, we would be behind an infinite line of bulls that would only buy us time. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. We thank you for this incredible chapter in Leviticus chapter 4. Father, thank you for bringing us face-to-face with guilt, face-to-face with atonement, and by your grace face-to-face with Christ, our great high priest, who made full atonement for our sins. Father, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.